there was a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth over the loss of the OP39, but I kind of feel like if you were okay with the 39, you would probably be okay with a 36. I feel like they scratched the same itch a little bit. Have you met our audience? Yes. Have you read Hoodie? <laughs> <laughs> are you insane? <laughs> yeah. Every half millimeter, Jack, redefines who you are as a human being Correct. and what your values are. So yeah. how dare you, first of all? <laughs> Rolex or any, anything else. <laughs> Hey everybody, I'm your host Stephen Pulverant and this is Hodinky Radio. So we didn't exactly get the trade shows that we usually have this year, so I missed out on the experience of bunking in an Airbnb with my Hodinky colleagues, spending hours and hours every night sitting around a communal table, writing about watches, waiting for the press releases to come out, kind of rushing to get the news up. But we got kind of a small approximation of it this past week. Uh, Rolex decided to release their collection of new watches this year, all at once, it hit at 6 p.m. Uh, here in New York City, and we kind of gathered in a, I guess, virtual Airbnb on our company Slack uh, and cranked out stories on all those new releases. But after that, I was able to sit down with Jack and with Ben to kind of go over the biggest news. So the new Submariner, the new Oyster Perpetuals, the updates to the Sky Dweller, and really hash out what we think it means for those individual watches and for Rolex more broadly. Uh, I always learn a ton from those two guys anytime I talk to them, but especially when I talk to them about something like Rolex. So I think you're really going to enjoy that conversation. But those are far from the only new releases to have come out recently. So I got James and John into the virtual studio, and we talked through a whole bunch of other releases from other brands, focusing mostly on things at the more affordable end of the spectrum. So we talk about things from the likes of Longines, from Breitling, and even from Bulgari. Uh, a lot of these watches have their own unique perspective or bring something different to the table, and it really underscores just how creative brands are getting and how this year that we really thought might be kind of dead in the watch industry has turned out to be pretty exciting. So without further ado, let's do this. This week's episode is presented by Accutron. To accompany the relaunch of Accutron watches, the brand has produced an incredible book entitled Accutron, From the Space Age to the Digital Age, chronicling the nearly six decades of Accutron history. Stay tuned later in the show to learn more or visit AccutronWatch.com. Hey guys, how you doing? I'm great, Stephen. How are you? I'm good. It's the morning after uh, Rolex releases. Of course I'm good. How about you, Jack? Never been better. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe that for some reason. I'm not sure why, but... I've seen Jack be better. I witnessed it. <laughs> it was on a press trip in 2008. <laughs> Yeah. Well, oh yeah, yeah. That okay. Fair. <laughs> guys, this is a family show. We uh, we can't we can't talk about that. But uh, it's good to have you guys on the show. We don't get to chat the three of us too much uh, these days since we're not in the office constantly bothering one another. But uh, we figured Rolex dropped a pile of new watches, kind of unexpectedly, kind of expectedly, uh, and we thought it was a good good excuse to get get the band back together and uh, talk through it. That sound okay to you guys? Totally. Sounds great to me. So let's 
let's start with just the biggest news. So the, the big news, Rolex released a whole bunch of new things, but the, the big news is they revamped the entire Submariner collection, uh, which is something they don't do too often. Typically, they'd like roll out one model, then kind of update the next, you know, the rest of the collection over a few years. But uh, they redid the whole Submariner collection, uh, and the TLDR of this is the sub is now 41 millimeters instead of 40 millimeters, uh, but the case has slimmer lugs now. Uh, the bracelet's a little bit wider and integrates slightly differently with the case. Uh, and there's a new, like, fully updated movement inside. That's that's pretty much the gist, right? That's pretty much the gist, yeah. Uh, so let's let's go hot takes here. What do you what do you guys think? What are your your first impressions of the new sub, having not seen them in the metal? Jack, you want to go first? Boy, it's it's tough to say without actually seeing it, but um, you know, it, it's obviously not identical, but virtually identical is the phrase that comes to mind. It's very very difficult to tell the two apart. I like the redesigned case. I think it's a nice tweak. Uh, looks more graceful to me. To me, the big news, though, is uh, is the new movement. And, uh, you know, getting a movement with a Chronogy escapement uh, in the Submariner, uh, it just seems like a really, really logical thing to do. I feel like launching that escapement in a uh, gold day date was a very Rolex thing to do. But I feel like its natural home is in the professional watches, and seeing it in the Submariner is fantastic. That's, to me, that's much bigger news than, the, you know, the minor case tweaks. I mean, you know, th this is probably the most underwhelming new Rolex in a while from like a collector's standpoint. You know, Jack is completely valid, more than valid. He's, he's spot on with what this movement means to to actual watchmaking and in terms of like industrializing, like a very interesting kind of like basically form of, of energy transmission. Um, however, as we all know, for better or worse, nobody kind of gives a shit about that. Like when we're talking about buying Rolexes, <laughs> like you buy a Rolex to stunt on your friends. Like I got this and you didn't, you know? Um, so from, from that perspective, like, you know, like, you know, I, I own the, the, the 40 millimeter sub, I wear it all the time. It's an amazing watch. Is this one better? Having not seen it, I can't really speak to that. I believe that it looks a little bit better balanced. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of when Langa upsized the datagraph from 39 to 41. And everyone was like, oh shit, like, you know, Langa going bigger, like who needs that? But if you put on the, the up down versus the standard datagraph, like the up down just wears like significantly better. It is just way better balanced on the wrist. I would imagine that, you know, all the people kind of balking at the, the one millimeter upsize here will be quickly quieted when they, when they put the new watch on. I, I believe this will just wear better. Um, in terms of like visuals, like it's, it's the same watch. It is the same watch, you know? And I think it, it'll be really difficult to tell um, the new watch from the old watch, like on the wrist, you know, like when, when the new Daytona came out, however many years ago, five years ago or so, like you could tell right away there was a black bezel. That was a new thing, you know? This doesn't have that. Uh, I don't think that there's going to be the wait lists that we're used to. I mean, I have no idea how many Rolex is making, obviously. Um, but I think like, you know, if you look back, like the, the steel 40 millimeter sub has been kind of the one professional watch that you could get from an AD, like kind of, you know, like I'm not saying you just walk in and ask for it, but like if you put your name down, you'd probably get a call within a few months, you know, and you didn't have to be somebody. Uh, I don't I don't know if that's going to change. Like I think, I think there's going to be a run on these in the beginning, like with literally any other new watch from any brand, not just Rolex. But I think things are going to calm down. I mean, I think like people have to remember that like it's not in Rolex interest to not sell watches. Like the Submariner is the core of their entire brand. Like they're going to want to sell a fucking lot of these things, you know? Uh, so I expect the, these watches to be everywhere, but you just not to know it because they look just like the old one. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point, which is that like from a watch enthusiast standpoint, like you said, like Jack's point is is extremely valid. But the vast majority of people buying the approximately million watches that Rolex produces every year 
are not watch enthusiasts. Like they're buying them because a Rolex is a nice watch. And when they buy it, everybody who sees them knows that they bought the new Rolex or bought a new Rolex. Yeah. And from that perspective, I think you're totally right. Like there's, there's no, if you already own the previous generation sub, like if you go out and buy this, like nobody's going to realize you bought a new watch, which I think for, you know, the vast majority of consumers is, is one of the reasons to do it. Um, yeah, I think, and you know, to to speak to the fact, to speak to how much it looks like the old sub, um, I'll kind of like out myself here. Uh, after I saw it in person to shoot the photos that ran with our, our story from yesterday, um, I went to send the two of you a picture of the new watch to show you what it looked like in person. And uh, I was doing it quickly before another meeting. Uh, and I accidentally sent you both a picture of the old sub and was we like, did. oh my God, look at yeah. the new Submariner. Yeah, I'm like, wow, it looks just, <laughs> oh wait, it is the old one. Uh, yeah, it I mean, it, it's really, you know, again, this is like the most, it's the most Rolex update ever. A lot of, I've seen a lot of people saying like, hey, the this is similar to like the 911. The 911 always kind of looks the same. This is far more extreme than like the 992 versus the 991, 911. Like you can tell the difference between those two cars, like from 50 meters away. Like you can just tell it's bigger, it's wider, different slope, you know, whatever. Like this, you really, like you really have to stare at these two watches, like, you know, two in each or one in each hand. Uh, to really understand the difference, um, it's uh, it's it's interesting. It re- it's it's just peak Rolex, peak peak twenty twenty and peak peak Rolex. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I think where the where the differences start to feel a little more apparent are in the date subs. So the the non date sub is only made black dial, black bezel, stainless steel. Like that's it. There's one no date sub. Uh, the date sub there are seven variants. Uh, it's what is it? Two steel, two gold, two two-tone, and then one white gold. Right. Um, and that's where you start to see a little more variation. And, and specifically, the two models that I think people are going to get really excited about are, are what we could call like the new Kermit and the maybe like, you know, baby Smurf or half Smurf or whatever you want to call it. Like there's the steel model that has a, a green Cerachrome bezel and a black dial. And then there's a white gold sub uh, with a black dial and a blue serochrome bezel. Um, the green has been done in the past, uh, but was not offered immediately before this, uh, and not in serochrome. You, if you wanted the green sub, it also had to have a green dial. And same with the blue, where if you wanted the white gold sub, it had to have a blue dial and a blue bezel. Personally, I like these versions with the black dials and the colored bezels a whole lot more, just personally. Um, how, how do you guys feel about them? Jack, go for it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, to your point, Stephen, they are cosmetically uh, much more noticeably new than the, uh, than the no-date model. And, uh, I mean, I think, that they're, I think that they're all handsome watches. Um, and certainly they give you the, uh, they give you the added, you know, pizzazz of having, you know, obviously on your wrist something that's new rather than something that you have to look at with a magnifying glass in order to see the coronet. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I thought that the uh, I thought the green bezel sub with a green dial was a great looking watch. I think it's uh, a handsome watch with a black dial, and uh, I, th- I think that's about it. You know, I mean, I'm I'm much more focused. I, I hate to sound like a broken record if anybody actually remembers what a broken record sounds like. What What um, does that sound like, Jack? Can you uh, make that sound like, like me talking about movements? That's okay. what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know. Uh, yeah, it's not it's not something that that uh, 99% of the people who buy a Rolex are going to care about, but I think it's kind of fantastic that uh I mean, 
this is the most technically advanced Submariner Rolex has ever produced. And uh, what a time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ben, you you own a white gold Rolex sports watch, but <laughs> with a black dial, not the one that kind of like obviously screams, look at me, I'm a white gold sport watch. Yep. Uh, how do you feel about the blue sub having a black dial now that's like a little more low key, a little less in your face? How do I, how do I even answer that? You know what I mean? It's like they're both totally <laughs> fine. Like they're great watches. It's just like, yeah. So you know what I mean? It's just like yeah, it's that's uh, fair. Th these wa these watches are are great. I have a white gold GMT that I that I love and wear all the time. You know, the, the beauty of white gold is that it looks like steel, but you get the heft and you get the little gray tones. And, you know, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, you know, the, what's funny is the, the, the white gold sub never really took off the way that I kind of thought it should. Like, to me, that's a killer, right? Like, it looks steel, but is, is far more rare, far more interesting, and that is some precious metal. Um, it never really took off. I'm sure this one will be hot because, you know, the last one was, was introduced when, like, nobody kind of cared about sports watches the way that they do now. Um, yeah. like that watch had been out for probably almost 10 years and just like nobody was paying attention to, to, to white gold Submariners back then in, in the modern, you know, modern watches. Um, it's going to be hot for a little while for sure. But again, I think like, you know, of all the sports watches, the Submariner makes up such an important part of Rolex's like actual strategy in terms of like market penetration that I don't think it's going to be too difficult to get long-term. And I think that's a great thing. And I think, you know, in, you know, again, I have no inside information at all, sincerely, uh, but I think it would be nice if, for example, like all the Submariners were, were possible to get at retail, you know, maybe within a year uh, without having to wait a, 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 you know, an extreme period of time. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, I wonder also because, like you said, this is such a like foundational element of Rolex's collection. Like this is, I think you could make a solid argument that this is the foundation of what makes Rolex Rolex, at least for most people. Agreed. Um, the fact that they chose to do the whole collection at once, just like whole cloth, and the fact that they didn't just like change the case size, they like reshaped the case and re-engineered it. And the Submariner case, I mean, in a lot of ways is similar to the GMT case. Like it's that that sort of like modern maxi sport watch case. Yep. Um, do you guys think we're going to see then this like more kind of like, I guess, elegant, maybe you could call it more refined kind of like slimmer lug design? Do you think it being introduced in the sub kind of gives us a little bit of insight into like, okay, this is this is where Rolex head is at. Like, this is probably going to make its way to other things. Or should we just think of this as like just a sub thing for now? Yeah, and I, I think you you can. It's fair to assume that you will see this kind of rolled out throughout the rest of the family. Uh, I mean, the Rolex sub got a lot of stuff first, uh, and I mean, it is as as we've all said a few times now. Like, it is the foundation of of this this company. Uh, so I would assume we'll see kind of like the, the recrafting of the cases of the GMT and the Sea Dweller and, and other things down the road. I don't know when, um, but I, I think it's fair to say, you know, a Rolex works very iteratively. And like, I think this is the first iteration of one thing, then we're going to see the next one. And like, you know, we've got 10 years before we see this kind of fully rolled out to, to everything. Um, you know, for example, like we like the, the, the ceramic bezel Daytona came out in 2014, I'm going to say, maybe 2013, I forget, the platinum one. And like, we still don't have a gold Daytona on a bracelet with a ceramic bezel. It's 2020. You know what I mean? It's just like, they, they just, they take their damn time because they can, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, all right, let's, let's move to some of the other introductions so that we make sure we get some time to chat about them. So, uh, Jack, I'm going to, I'm going to want you to tackle this one first, but we, we saw a big shakeup in the Oyster Perpetual lineup. So, 
there are some big changes, some small changes, but the, the biggest news is they did away with the OP39 uh, and introduced a 41. Uh, and then we also saw a change. Uh, I believe it's the 26 was changed to 28 millimeters. So we saw both kind of the like the smallest and the largest both got larger. Like they just kind of ratcheted the whole collection up. Um, what, what are your, we, we also got some new dials, which we'll, we'll talk about, but Jack, what are your, what are your first impressions on, in addition to seeing the sub get a major update, also see some new OPs? Oh boy. Um, you know, I have actually, uh, oddly enough, I have a lot more thoughts about the new OPs than I do about, uh, the new sub. I agree. Give them to me, Jack. <laughs> the OP 36 has been one of my favorite Rolexes for a very, very long time. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful watch in just about every respect, uh, simple as simple could be. And, um, you know, just one of those uh, watches that really is truly, you know, you can say this about a lot of different watches, but this is really, truly, you know, the only watch that you would ever need in pretty much any iteration. There was a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth over the loss of the OP39, but I kind of feel like if you were, I don't know, I might be wrong about this, but I feel like if you were okay with uh, the 39, you would probably be okay with a 36. I feel like they scratched the same itch a little bit. Have you um, met our audience? Have yes. you read Hoodinky? <laughs> <laughs> Are you insane? Yeah. Every half millimeter, Jack, redefines who you are as a human being Correct. and what your values yes. are. So yes. how dare yes. you, first of all? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, um, fortunately for me, uh, you know, life is essentially without meaning. So I can pretty much say whatever <laughs> I want about <laughs> Rolex or any, anything else. Uh, I, I love the new colors in the 36. Um, there was uh, quite a lot of flack about them in the comments from people who think that uh, basically any Rolex should either, Rolex is only allowed to have white or black dials, um, but there's a lot, There's obviously a lot of historical precedent for those. I think they're absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, see, again, seeing the Chronergy Escapement rolled out in a $5,900 watch um, that you could just pick up and wear for the rest of your life. Um, you know, you're not going to get better performance in a series produced watch uh, from anybody. And, uh, you know, it's arguably the best made time only watch at this price point as well. It's, uh, you know, when we did our three on three, a while back three, uh, simple Swiss automatic watches, you know, one of the things that we said about the, uh, the OP is that, um, it really is, uh, the apotheosis in a way of the fine Swiss automatic daily wear watch. I think that remains true. And it's even more so with the new movement in it. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, uh, to Ben's point earlier, I'm one of probably about six people on earth who's genuinely emotionally excited about getting the Chronergy escapement in that family of watches. But, you know, uh, what can I say? It's uh, It floats my boat. Yeah. Jack is Jack. Always will be. Jack is Jack. Yeah. What do you, I mean, so you, you mentioned, Jack, the new dials, just to go in on that a little bit. So, so what Rolex did was they rolled out uh, across the OP lineup. Uh, some new dials. There's a turquoise, there's a green, there's a yellow, there's like a coral red, and then there's like a bubblegum pink um, that kind of are like a weird little homage to the Stella dials. Um, I don't know, Ben, is that what you thought of when you first saw these? Because it's it's what came to mind for me immediately. Yeah, totally. And I've, I've been talking with like some, you know, big collectors over the past 24 hours about it. And like, there, there's no question, like there, there are two things that this references, like Stella dials, like, first of all, like, for any of those people who who kind of are saying what Jack is insinuating, which is like Rolex needs to have white, black, or, or you know maybe blue or green dials, like Rolex made something called the Stella dial in the '70s. Lacquer dials, incredibly bright colors, corals and yellows and oranges and reds. 
Uh, and these watches really kind of took on uh, their own meaning in their own life, I would say maybe like 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, and John Mayer uh, had them and, you know, Bob Marin was a big seller of them in L.A. Uh, and then based on those, you know, people, Ken Jacobs of Wanna Buy a Watch and a few other folks would go ahead and color, do color dials in Oyster Perpetuals and Datejust and things like that. And you could buy them at Wanna Buy a Watch. You could buy them at Barney's here in New York. You could buy them at Fred Siegel in L.A. These very like kind of fashion forward places. And those watches themselves have kind of a cult following. Rolex never made them, to be clear. The Stella dials were made by Rolex. These in the 90s and 2000s were not made by Rolex. Uh, lots of lawsuits, et cetera. But I mean, very, very, like immensely popular watches that we saw being sold on like Goop and, uh, and uh, you know, the Gilt Group back in the day, et cetera. Uh, and I think what, what Rolex has done here is they've basically taken that idea and take it back for themselves. Like this is our idea. We made the, those color dialed watches in the seventies and the day day long before anybody made these kind of like uh, aftermarket watches in LA uh, and they took them back. And I think it, it really is going to do incredibly well uh, for the brand. I think, you know, as I've said on a previous podcast, like the way that you can buy, I don't know, six different versions of the Royal Oak right now, and they wear exactly the same, but they're just in different colors, basically. Like, you know, if you're fabulously wealthy and you love watches, like you collect Royal Oaks as if they're bracelets, like as if they're jewelry. And I think these watches at this price point, people will collect these as sets. Like, I think you're going to go around and say, oh, I want the yellow dial. I want the, the, you know, the turquoise dial or whatever. And they're, they're reasonably priced enough where a certain set will collect those. And all of a sudden you went from like the average person that wants one of these buying one to buying five. Uh, and I think even beyond that, like I think, and I wouldn't be shocked if it's the yellow one based on what I know about Stella dials, one of them is going to be impossible to get. I just know that. Like you just know that Rolex or somebody back there is like, hey, like, let's make one of these the fucking thing to have. And then, you know, somebody famous, Ellen, or somebody's going to be seen wearing one. And now the yellow dial, uh, Oyster Perpetual is going to be the one to have. I think it's brilliant. Like, I think this is like, you know, people like nobody needs this stuff. We're always the first people to say that. Uh, I think Rolex is just finally kind of playing into that and saying like, hey, you want to be crazy and buy five of the same watches just with different dials? Like, we're going to give that to you. Uh, and the fact that they did it in 36 and 41, like 41 for, you know, guys today, like that totally makes sense. Uh, I'm calling it right now. 39 millimeter oyster perpetuals are going to pop. Like if they haven't already, we should look at Chrono 24. Uh, those are going to be super desirable watches because 39 is such a great size, if, if you ask me. Um, I also think it's going to impact the market for the current Rolex Explorer 1, which now remains the only 39 millimeter Oyster Perpetual watch in Rolex uh, catalog. I think those like those are already kind of hard to get. I think they're going to be very difficult to get and probably, you know, really uh, jump in price pretty soon. Um, you know, lots of lots of fun stuff in, in many ways. Like I'm more excited by that those releases than, uh, than the sub stuff. The sub stuff is great. Like it's benchmark flagship stuff, but this is something unusual. It harkens back to the Stella stuff. Uh, it's really interesting for them to kind of, again, kind of like take back the idea of the color dials from the aftermarket. Uh, you know, it was so popular in the seventies and I'm sorry, in the nineties and two thousands. Um, jokingly, like we're going to start calling these the Ken Jacobs because like he was kind of the, the, the seller in LA that really kind of put those on the wrists of a lot of well-known people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's great. And I think it's actually, that's probably more exciting to me as a, as a collector than, uh, than the subs. You know, what's going to happen now? What's that? Uh, everybody's going to be like, oh, Ben Clymer said on Hodinkee that the yellow one is going to be super hard to get. Uh, <laughs> and then what? I must, 
I must, I must, and then it's going to be super hard to get. Oh, well, I mean, maybe, who knows? I mean, look, let's I, go I, load I, up I, on them right now, Jack. I'm, I'm going to call a couple ADs. You call a couple ADs. Let's buy some yellow uh, OPs. Let, let's complete the, the conspiracy here, Jack. Like we already have a stockpile of yellow oyster perpetuals in my safe right now, right? We like, we somehow got them before Rolex <laughs> delivered them. I've got thousands yes. of them. We're just going to flood the market with them. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Cause that's how we operate. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, look, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's fun. And I think like that, look, Rolex is incredible. Like I, I think Rolex is, is a brand for which we all have so much admiration. One thing they are not is fun, you know? And, and like, you know, I'm saying that very publicly, I think these are fun. And I think like that is such a nice, um, it's just a nice change for the brand and for us as lovers of the brand. Just be like, you know what, like these are kind of silly, like lighthearted watches and they're fashion watches and that's okay. Yeah, I totally agree with you about that. I, I think like we deal with this all the time, not just with Rolex, but with the idea that like it's it's in our little corner of the Internet and of the watch collecting community, like people take this very seriously. And that's that's good in a lot of ways. But like ultimately, if if you're going to be obsessed with watches and it doesn't put a smile on your face and doesn't make you happy, then like why why are you doing this? Right. And I think these these are watches that can get people on that train like this is something that somebody who's interested in fashion somebody who just thinks like maybe i want a nice watch but i don't want something super serious or or conservative gets into this and then it's it's a gateway and it gets them to realize that like watches can be fun and there's a community around this that can have fun with these things and i think this is like a net positive not just for rolex but for like watches in general to have a relatively affordably priced fun collectible rolex out there is is a good thing for everyone 100%. 100%. And now a word from this week's sponsor. In addition to launching an entirely new collection of watches powered by industry-first technology, Accutron is celebrating its 60th anniversary with the release of a beautiful book that tells the complex and compelling story of this watch brand that's unlike any other. Accutron, from the space age to the digital age, has just hit shelves and virtual shelves across the globe, and it's a must-read for anyone interested in the past, present, and future of Accutron. Now, if you need more convincing, the book was actually written by Hodinkee Editor-in-Chief Jack Forrester, along with co-author and editor Aaron Sigmund, and it features a foreword by renowned industrial designer Carl Gustav Magnussen. It tells the story of how the original Accutron Spaceview came to be, as well as how the latest Accutron watches, the Spaceview 2020 and Spaceview DNA, draw inspiration from their forebearers, while also charting a new course for Accutron in the 21st century. There's also a limited edition version of the book that comes paired with a special version of the Spaceview 2020 watch that's only available with the book. There are only 300 sets with each pair individually numbered to match. You can find these at select Accutron retailers, including the Hodinkee shop. For more about Accutron, visit AccutronWatch.com and follow at AccutronWatch on Instagram. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, so the the last big release, which I do want to chat about, uh, it's again, it's a little more incremental. Uh, I agree the OPs are are the big news, but uh, the Sky Dweller uh, is now available on OysterFlex, which... You know, as we were all chattering about this in the the Hodinkee Slack last night, doing our little like virtual Basel world together, um, Kara said she was shocked that they didn't already come on OysterFlex. Like she kind of had it in her mind that like this watch always belonged on an OysterFlex strap, and it hadn't occurred to me. But I think I think she's absolutely right. Like seeing seeing these, especially 
in the press photos, those like three quarter views where you can see how the strap meets the case and how it might wear on the wrist. A yellow gold sky dweller with a black dial on a black oyster flex is that's that's a mean look. I'm I'm pretty into that. Yeah, look, I mean, there's this whole other version of the Rolex buyer that like is like not a hoodinky reader. Like they're just guys like want to have like the meanest, baddest Rolex, and like that's kind of where the sky dweller lives. And I think this is going to be incredibly, incredibly popular uh, with with that set. Um, you know, like I, I have the Oyster Flex on a on a white gold Daytona, and I just never loved the way that it looked. And then I bought it, and it's amazing. Like it is probably the most comfortable watch that I wear. So putting the Sky Dweller on this on this strap, I think, is, is going to do really well. It's going to be, you know, with the with the Richard Mille set, with the Offshore set, etc. Uh, I think it's going to do very well. Yeah, Jack, what are your, what are your feelings? Not just on the Oyster Flex, but on on the sky dweller in general, like it, it kind of sits in a weird spot in Rolex's lineup and has its own sort of mythology around it. I'm, I'm kind of curious what your take is. I mean, I admire it very much. Technically it's the most complicated watch Rolex makes. Um, everybody always seems to forget that it's an annual calendar as well as a dual time zone watch uh, with a very cool implementation of the calendar as well. I think the Oyster Flex makes a lot of sense. You know, we've had a couple in the office over the years, both for review purposes and uh, you know, just sometimes uh, when somebody comes to visit and they've got one. And, you know, it's a large watch, uh, even by Rolex standards, but on the heavy side. And uh, I agree with Ben about the OysterFlex bracelet. I really did not see, when that bracelet was announced, I didn't see why it would be a big deal. And then uh, the first time we had a watch in from Rolex to shoot that was on an OysterFlex, uh, you know, holy crap, it's, uh, it's unbelievably comfortable. Uh, very, very secure on the wrist. Very, very durable. Um, it's a fantastic, fantastic thing to put on uh, a slightly heavier um, you know, luxury travel sports watch. I mean, taking these all together, like looking at, at the lineup, right? So like obviously updating the movements across the range was was really important this year. And I think now most of Rolex's lineup, I'd have to double check. I should have done this ahead of recording, but most of the lineup now has current generation movements in it, um, which is great. I mean, it's it's kind of, again, like as we've said multiple times, like Rolex traditionally rolls things out slowly. It's good now that it feels like they've kind of like closed the loop. Like now most, if not all of your, of your, your sport watches at least have these Chronergy escapement equipped movements. Uh, everything's up to date. And now we're kind of like, we've got a new profile for a sport watch case. We've got some colorful dials. Um, I wonder if you guys think this, this kind of tells us anything bigger about the direction Rolex is heading in. I think, uh, you know, Ben said earlier, this is the most Rolex uh, year ever. These are the most Rolex releases ever. And I really think that's true. You know, the th thing that I've always kind of loved about Rolex is also a thing that sort of um, aggravates people about Rolex, which is that they make incremental improvements. They kind of uh, don't seem to particularly, um, I wouldn't say they don't, well, maybe they don't care. Uh, they don't seem to particularly uh, take into account any notions other than their own sort of internal, internally articulated philosophy about how to create new Rolex watches and how to make improvements on existing models. New models come along very, very rarely. And typically, this is what we get with Rolex. You know, we get in incremental improvements, often uh, which represent uh, technically uh, technical improvements to the watches as well. You know, I mean, ceramic, for instance, is a much better material than anodized aluminum for a dive watch. It's just simply a technically better material. Um, so I think that's, this is really just a, you know, kind of, uh, I don't think there's anything new here in terms of, you know, change in philosophy at Rolex. I think that this is exactly what they're uh, best known for. It's exactly what people either love or hate about them. And, um, 
you know, I think that the uh, I think the good ship Rolex is just going to keep sailing in the direction that's been, you know, uh, sailing for the rememberable past uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, why mess with success, right? Like they're doing just fine. Let them keep on trucking. Like, would you change that much? You know? No. Yeah. No. That's entirely fair. Uh, all right. So last last thing I want to ask you guys, we've we've given some hints to it along the way, but of the new releases. If you guys could have one on your wrist today, which one would you want on your wrist right now? Jack, how about you go first? Uh, Coral 36. It's a good call. Ben? I think probably yellow 36. Interesting. I was going to go coral or one. yellow 36. Uh, the, the yellow one, that's that's the one that's going to be hard to get, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let's quote <laughs> that. Let's make that a thing. Uh, I was going to go coral or yellow 36, but just to shake things up, uh, I'll go white gold sub. Yeah, blue that, bezel, that, would, that sub. would be a good one too. White gold sub for sure. Yeah. So, all right, cool. Well, we're, we're going to link up in the show notes all the coverage uh, provided by a bunch of our team members. There's going to be a ton more coming. Uh, we're going to be going hands-on with these watches over the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, so if you want your, your yearly fix of Rolex news, Rolex hands-on, uh, Rolex analysis, uh, we're we're gonna be bringing it, so don't 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 fear, and uh, maybe we'll we'll get Ben back on in a couple of weeks once he's had a chance to check some of these watches out in the metal. Yeah, and after I've sold all those yellow uh, thirty six, <laughs> I better get my cut here. That's right. <laughs> awesome guys, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having us on the show, Stephen. Thanks. And up next, I sit down with James and John to talk about some of the best affordable new watches out there. Hey guys, how's it going? Going well, how are you? Yeah, good. Good. It's, uh, it's felt kind of the last couple of weeks, it's felt like an extended Basel world, hasn't it? It has. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can tell uh, not just in terms of new watches coming out, but uh, staying up late, writing things up spur of the moment. I think I think you guys are feeling the burn uh, just like I am, right? Yeah, certainly. There's there's a lot on a lot on the go these days between you know quick stuff and and long stuff and and the rest of it. And it's a different sort of a different. I'm sure John, you'll agree. It's sort of a different energy to produce these sorts of things in a vacuum at home, sitting on your couch. Than yeah, it is, a, you know, at a at a shared table in some Airbnb in Switzerland where you've got you kind of have like the the camp vibe. You're with your crew and, and you're and you're working. It's it's a it's in a whole different thing this year to to try and keep up with something like a Geneva Watch Days. Yeah, I would agree with that. And then also with uh, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a it's a totally different way to kind of uh, jam out stories, uh, you know, late at night by yourself as opposed to feeding off each other's energy. And Im- importantly, there's no kebab shop. I don't know about you, James. I'm I'm really feeling the lack of shawarma uh, these days. Yeah, I think I think I, I unless unless I actively have a shawarma in my hands, uh, that's a feeling that I'm I'm I think is always there. That's just a burden that I carry. <laughs> um, but definitely these days, yeah, when not not having some of this uh, the uh, regional you know Basel delicacy of uh, of the shawarma spot, uh, it's a uh, it's a different thing for sure. Yeah, you didn't. There's no uh, yeah no no whiskey and and street food at two in the morning. So. I, I find that the kebab like weighs me down and holds me back. I felt like I was able to persevere a little bit more without the kebab, to be honest. 
Yeah, you got to know which side of the line your physiology falls on for that one. Because for me, if you if I thread the needle correctly, that's all that's that's the energy I need for several more posts. But if you wait too yeah, late, same. if you wait too late, it's a it's an absolute shutdown. <laughs> you might as well have taken if, a sleeping pill. If you wait pill. too long, uh, yeah, Joe has to come like tuck you into bed mm-hmm. and say he'll see you in the morning. Yep, nice uh, kiss on the forehead and start again in the morning. <laughs> Well, we're we're recording this the day after uh, Rolex dropped all of their stuff, which uh, people are going to hear about as well. But that's not what we're here to discuss. Uh, the three of us are going to chat about kind of everything else that has come out recently. So that's uh, the Geneva Watch Days stuff, the watches that have kind of trickled in over the summer, and even some pieces that came out earlier in the year, but are only sort of like hitting the market now. And we're only kind of getting our hands on them now. And that's actually kind of where I want I want to start. So one of the things I've noticed is there's been a lot of affordable watches recently. And I think it would be easy to read that as, oh, you know, the world's kind of chaotic right now. You know, maybe people are spending less money. But, you know, I think Jack mentioned this on last week's show. It's it's important to remember that, like, watches don't get spun up in six months. You know, like, there's basically no products coming out now that, like, were dreamed up since... February, March, when everything went into lockdown. So uh, I think it might be a coincidence. It might not be. But uh, the watch I want to start out with is actually something, James, you went you went pretty deep on. And this is the only like really deep review we're going to talk about today. But uh, you wrote a review a, a full week on the wrist of the Seiko Prospects uh, SPB143. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of give us a quick rundown of what, what that watch is and why you wanted to review it? Yeah, so uh, back a, a few months ago, Seiko Tees, or not Tees, they launched this kind of uh, four-model new range into the SPB. And and for those who didn't read my post and, and didn't catch a, you know, a solid hour of SPB chat on a previous Grey NATO, it, it's basically um, uh, the SPB line usually sits above, or not usually, but does sit uh, kind of between something like the SRPs, the five and $600 stuff, and then the stuff that that kind of exists only in the limited edition, the SLA line and such. So it's it's a it's their 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 point where they kind of tease between eight hundred and twelve hundred dollars. So it's that that four figure uh, price point for a lot of people. And it's something where I think that they've kind of been finding their way for the last uh, five years or so um, because they have such strong success at two and three and four and five hundred dollars, especially with. In the past just a couple of years, we had things like the SRP 777, which has been huge for the brand um, and, and their more value uh, level. But those are a four series movement. Um, and, and with the SPB, you move up to a six R series movement, which is now a 70 hour power reserve. Um, and you typically get like a, a better refined dial, maybe a better case finishing, maybe just a different size or a different aesthetic. And, and what's key with these SPBs is they kind of they're kind of a, a branch on the design train from the original uh, 62 mass, um, which is, you know, Seiko's earliest dive watch. And, and of course, there's there's a big difference in sort of the way they did the proportions on these two watches. And if you want the exact watch from the 62 mass in 2017, they launched the uh, SLA 017, which is almost a carbon copy of that watch. And that's probably the one to go for. But of course, that's more like four grand and very limited and probably not that easy to find right now. These are between a thousand and twelve hundred bucks, the one that we're talking about specifically, the SPB one four three, is also known as the SBDC one zero one in Japan. Uh, they're identical watches. Uh, they just you know there's a Jap- there's a JDM uh, reference number, and there's kind of a rest of the world reference number. 
so that can be a little bit confusing. But these, uh, this one's a you know black bezel, gray dial, uh, steel dive watch with sort of a 60s skin diver uh, shape, drilled lugs. Um, it, it definitely takes a lot of elements from the original 62 mass. I think that of the four of them, the one that I like the most, which is this 143, it's what I have on my wrist as we're recording this, uh, is probably the most bland or, or lack, like it's just kind of a, it's one unit of dark dial dive watch. Uh, but the big thing for me with these is the size, you know, they're, they're 40.5 millimeters wide, a uh, little over 13 and a half millimeters thick, but that includes a domed crystal. They just wear better than an SKX or an SRP. And as someone who, you know, this is what I talk about a little bit in the in the review, but, you know, with somebody who's been, maybe been through two dozen, maybe even more like three dozen Seiko watches in the past 10 years, ones that I really liked on paper and then maybe they didn't suit my wrist or, or, or for whatever reason just didn't have a lot of staying power for me. Uh, this one feels like that sort of perfect mix of the Seiko, the elements that I like of Seiko design, but in a size that they just don't commonly produce watches at. That's pretty good synopsis there. I mean, I think if, if people want to go much deeper in terms of your your sort of like nitty gritty thoughts on the watch, we'll obviously link to the review. But um, for me, one of the interesting things about this watch, and John, I'm curious what you think here is like, every year, there's a handful of watches that just generate like tons and tons of chatter. Uh, and this seems to be one of them. Like if you look around the watch internet, like since the moment these were released, it just it just seems to me like this is a watch everybody's talking about. Yeah, yeah, the, I I would agree with you. This is definitely a, a watch that people have been chatting about. It's it's generated a lot of buzz. It's uh, I think it's just it mainly comes down to how good it looks, right? It's uh, if you just look at the pictures in James's story, it's like an incredibly photogenic watch, and um, it seems like there's just a lot of value there, and uh, and it's just a you know. We were talking earlier about you know our watches are are many of these uh, more affordably priced watches being timed for for now the release uh this one probably not right did, did this one come out pre-covid I, I think it i think it did yeah. yeah so that's not the case with this one but i mean it's definitely like the right time for a watch like this and so maybe maybe people would have moved on to the next thing and talked about other watches uh uh more in this one wouldn't have gotten as much attention uh, as it seems to have this year uh, in a different uh, situation or in different times. Um, but it's, I mean, it's just a beautiful watch. It's like really well-priced. Uh, I think James did a really good job of laying out like, you know, the aspects of its design and its construction are, uh, are appealing to him. Um, and, you know, I mean, there, I guess, you know, there are a couple little things that you could, you could maybe, you could maybe uh, judge a little bit harshly about it. Like uh, the movement is not, you know, the highest end uh, Seiko movement, for example. And as James yeah, mentioned, mid range uh, for sure. Yeah. And as James mentioned, the, the, the bezel doesn't like totally uh, align with the, with the, with the um, uh, minutes track uh, precisely, but it's like, uh, it's, it's still really, really good. Yeah. I think, you know, something we, we haven't mentioned yet that I think is worth mentioning is, kind of the place Seiko occupies in the minds of a lot of a lot of collectors like Seiko because they produce watches at literally every price point like you can buy a Seiko for 50 bucks you can buy a Seiko for over a hundred thousand dollars um Seiko occupies this this place in sort of the imaginations of of a lot of watch collectors and it's it's a foothold for a lot of people so I think to me one of the things that stands out about this watch is that it's still affordably priced, but I think it might like kind of 
strike a chord with collectors who think mm. maybe they've moved on from Seiko, like somebody who bought an SKX and has moved on to maybe something, you know, more in the three to $5,000 price range might look at this and go, oh, like not only does this present great value, you know, it's it's objectively a good watch, but also like it it reminds me of my early days of watch collecting. It's kind of nostalgic in that way, but it's a product they can still be proud to wear today. And they're not like, oh yeah, this is my, you know, old beat up, skx that i got you know 20 years ago or whatever um so yeah i I think i think with seiko you can't ever count out the fact that they are for a lot of people like the the entry point into mechanical watches and and they've got that kind of like pull at your heartstrings nostalgia factor yeah i mean i i definitely get i feel like with this watch and i I would interest i think james would agree that you feel like you're getting a lot more than uh than the spend um and this is a watch that i would have quite possibly entertained buying myself. But you know, it's funny when I, when I, the closer I looked at it, I thought, you know what, I see this as like competition for my Black Bay 58, which I already own. I feel like they're almost in some ways too similar. I think this is definitely Seiko's Black Bay 58. You know, it's it's a watch that references some design elements from their past and comes in a little bit smaller than other models they already offer. Um, While still, you know, striking a balance, I'm not going to sit here and say that a Black Bay 58 is cheap, but if you go against its competition, it is properly priced. And I'm not also going to say that this is necessarily a cheap watch. Seiko makes cheaper, less expensive, more accessible models. By And absolutely, if you haven't been through the SKXs, uh, the SRP, there's now seven or eight versions of SRP, or even the new Seiko 5s, those are all worth experiencing on your path to spending $1,000 on a Seiko dive watch. And, uh, and, and I think that's nice because there, there is a road, there's kind of a journey that you can have with Seiko that, that gets you to a watch like this. Whereas with so many other, um, you know, enthusiast minded brands could be Tudor, could be, you know, 30 other brands, you've got to pony up a lot to just get your first taste. You know, like a Tudor's going to start at a few grand, a couple yeah. grand, and Nomos is going to start at a couple grand. Grand Seiko is going to start at a few grand. Right. And, and to get your first taste, I think that, that, you can start so you can start at sixty bucks with Seiko and get like a, a great watch that's going to run for years, uh, with like no fuss, no muss, take it in the pool, whatever. Um, and I think all that this is is just they take the the same sort of enthusiast, you know, buzz creating sort of fun part of that watch, and they just take it to a more expensive level. And the the price doesn't bother me uh, one bit. Um, I, I can understand why people who maybe haven't tried a bunch of them on on their kind of way up that ladder. Uh, wouldn't would say like there's no way I'm spending twelve hundred dollars on a Seiko dive watch like it's just not going to happen. Um, but I, yeah. I think that there's there's not other things at twelve hundred that are offering what this is offering. So I think they've done a good job pricing it. Yeah, cool. Well, I I, I agree with all of that, and I think you know we could probably do a full episode on this as you, you did, James, um, or, or the majority of an episode on uh, the Grey NATO. Um, so I would, we'll link up to that so people can, can get a little more if they want. Um, but this is far from the only like well-priced and interesting watch we've seen. And in fact, you know, it's probably the one we've been ruminating on the longest. So to kind of move, move along, there's another watch I saw this week that James, you also wrote up actually, uh, which is this new Longines Heritage Military Marine Nationale. Um, and like Longines has been on a tear the last couple of years. Uh, and like, they're a manufacturer that I think doesn't get enough credit a lot of the time. And some of that's down to the fact that for, for a period, there was a period of time there, like maybe five to 10 years ago, where a lot of what they were producing was, it was more consumer focused. It wasn't, I think the most interesting maybe to the three of us. Um, but they've kind of like 
come back with a vengeance. Mm. Uh, and this is this is just yet another example of that. Yeah, no, this is a this is a great looking watch. Uh, I'd be interested to hear kind of you know James's thoughts since he since he wrote it up. But I, I guess just like two kind of quick things about it that I noticed that I had never even seen before uh, were brown superluminova on the hands. And well, I guess that's really just the only thing, but um, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a killer looking watch and it's uh, kind of like the unexpected MN this year, huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, I agree with John and with Steven. I think this is a great looking watch. It's priced really well at about two grand for a Swiss watch with a, a, a you know, a quote, like at least in the family sort of movement. This is an ETA based movement, the L88, but it's the fifth generation or fifth stage of the L888. Uh, um, which means you're getting 64-hour power reserve in an automatic movement. It runs at uh, 25,200, so that's probably where they massage their way up to the 60-hour power reserve. Mm. But I'm not sure rate is all that essential, you know, assuming the watch is regulated and, and made correctly, which we all know Longines can do, you know, without breaking a sweat. Uh, where this one really hits uh, for me is, like I said, the two grand. I think that's a pretty reasonable price point. 38.5 millimeters. Uh, the 19-millimeter lugs is a bit of a bummer, but with a watch that's based on a 40s, military design i'll just wear it on a smaller i'll wear it on an 18 like like that kind of looks right the the mm. run the the the, yeah, the mismatch fair. fit would i don't think it would bother me on this watch or other watches that have uh, uh you know uneven numbers as their uh their lug sizes can be a bummer because i'm obsessed i change straps constantly on my watches uh but i do really like the way this one looks i love i love that they went with um drilled lugs Mm. So you can change your straps really well. And it also, again, it's an older kind of vintage style. The other thing that I like, and, and Stephen, you were saying that the brand doesn't always get the credit they deserve. I would say even more specifically, they don't get the credit they deserve for how well they've been doing vintage kind of uh, new vintage style. And for so long, you think of the Heritage yeah, Diver. Agreed. One of the first ones out there predates things like a, like an Aura 65 and, and the rest. And, and that, you know, they took a design that worked and was interesting and and went with it and i think they've been really following someone there has good taste in, in the watch's history and and what they invest their yeah. money in and and sometimes they go a little bit harder in the paint they had the the a, a previous heritage military version that kind of had like more defined speckles on the dial and i think oh, that they're kind the military of military watch yeah yeah they kind of go back and forth between that this one has what looks to be a, a finish of some sort on the dial and then as john mentioned the numerals in the hands i mean in the photos it looks black but it's listed as a uh, superluminova in brown and i know that they make a black compound as well which is called shadow I, I can't remember the the reference code for the the luminos uh for the the superluminova material but they've definitely made something that looks like a new watch that has aged or like an old watch that hasn't aged but is in a new case if that makes sense uh but i yeah i, I if you know if they did it wrong, I would be hard on them. But like execution is a huge part of this, and I think they executed really well on it. It's gorgeous. The blued hands look really good. It's one that I would just love to see in person. Yeah, I I agree, and I I think to me also, it's about balance, right? And like that that dial or this dial and those the brown luminova, if not paired with other quality details they could feel weird and out of place. Like if this case was too shiny and had like a bad strap on it and felt like it was like kind of like cobbled together from new parts mm -hmm. and you slap that like vintage dial in it, it'd feel terrible. But like this case has drilled lugs. It has a beautiful signed crown. Like I actually, the crown might be my favorite part of this watch. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got a back that has the like really deep uh, engravings in it for the, the case back tool. 
it almost reminds me of like the old Tretake Longine case backs. Like they they really nailed it. Like the bezel's amazing, actually. The bezel's another like real highlight here. So I, I think not only did they have a good idea, but like you said, James, like somebody there has good taste and made sure that they they nailed it. Yep. Um and and overall I think this is this is a real winner. Yeah, yeah for say- me it, it oh please go ahead, John. No, I was just going to say between this and the, uh, do you guys recall the uh, tuxedo models that all, that also didn't come out too long ago? There was like a, yeah. a, thir- a 13 ZN yeah. style chronograph as well. Beautiful. I mean, just I would say those la- last three releases have been like fantastic. I think, uh, including this MN. And um, yeah, you're right. Somebody definitely has good taste, but they also have like they have an incredible. Um, I mean, their museum. They have an incredible uh, back catalog. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. Longines just made so many different styles of watches. Yeah, that's true. And they have a really good museum and heritage department. So it's like they, I think it's just a lot of like, you know, factors converging in their favor. Um, and yeah, but like their heritage um, based watches are really among the best being made today. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I, I'm, early on in my time writing for Houdinki, I reviewed their big eye chronograph. And, and I think that thing is killer. It's one of the few chronographs where I wore it and it wears with the like general fun of a dive watch like it just has these giant markers and a ton of loom and it feels like an old watch and i think that they nailed the same sort of thing here and and i think the easiest way to think about this if you're listening to this in your car or whatever and you, you can't look up a picture of it is just imagine that like a, a light dialed longines expression kind of like an elevated uh hamilton uh khaki field mechanical yeah. uh it's just a really beautiful simple case it's going to look insanely good on a nato uh, you know, it comes on yeah. sort of a two-stitch style strap, and I think it looks it looks okay on that. Like, why not? Um, but with that dial color, you're going to be able to put it on literally any strap. The weirder the strap, the better, probably. And then on a green NATO, yeah. it'll just look ridiculous. Mm. Agreed. Yeah, i i want to I want to actually move on though, because I think now is now is a good way to transition over to this other watch I wanted to talk about, uh, which is the Breitling Endurance Pro, mm. which is maybe the exact opposite of this launching i think setting these two watches side by side you get sort of like two completely different approaches to like what you know 2020 watchmaking can be mm-hmm. yeah. um cole wrote this up but it's you know the the tldr version is it's a resin case like it's a super lightweight resin case with one of uh breitling super quartz movements so that's a, a thermocompensated, like extremely extremely precise quartz chronograph movement um and like I can count on, you know, one, maybe two hands, the number of quartz watches we write about each year. Uh, but this is one like when this press release landed in our inbox, like there was no question that this was something worth worth covering. I don't know what your your sort of initial reactions to these watches are. Feel free, John. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the design, you know, strikes me as uh, almost something that has been like in the Breitling catalog, probably since like the nineties and just like this basic kind of look, you know, when I, when, when I look at these first, my, my initial thought is like emergency watch, you know? So it's very, it's, yeah. it's, uh, and it's not exactly what I think we have seen much, uh, from, from Breitling in like the George Kern era. I think they've focused more on like the, the heritage design stuff as opposed to this. So, I mean, I understand the, the, I think they call it bright, bright light, right. Is there uh, is the, their proprietary name for this, uh, this polymer, uh, uh case. Um, I may be mistaken, but I think this, I, I think this is cer- certainly one of the first, uh, times that, uh, we've seen, uh, this uh, material used in the current era, although I think it dates back to like 2016, maybe. Um, okay. 
but uh, yeah, I mean, I just think it's, a, I mean, it's a highly technical watch. Um, a lot of people are going to look at it and, and judge it and say that it's, that it's plastic. Um, but I think it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. I think, you know, plastic is a pretty, is a pretty simplistic term in terms of, uh, uh, you know, describing the substance. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it's not necessarily a watch that I would, that I would reach for uh, and want to wear, but I think it's, uh, it's kind of a, kind of a neat design. Yeah, and from where I stand, I mean, it's it's. I think it's the first time we've seen bright light at this price point. It's three grand. Um, they're forty four millimeters. They're a little little uh, twelve and a half millimeters thick, which is fine. Hundred meters water resistant. It's. I think it's a pure like modern sports watch. Um, if you if you don't want to go the route of using a, a smartwatch or a, a you know Casio Pro Track or something like that, you want something that that's from a brand that you know. Maybe you're either a Breitling guy or you remember Breitling from when you were younger and, and you want to see what the brand's up to. I mean, the watch is going to weigh nothing. It comes in a handful of colors, rubber strap that looks awesome. And I, I can I can see people who are into um, other you know other what would be the West uh, you know kind of a more expensive adventure sports. Like mountain biking is very expensive to get into, and you kind of are used to your gear breaking when you fall or hit a jump wrong or something like that. And maybe the same for uh, for other sorts of sports. But I could see these being very popular among, um, you know, people who who have you know maybe had their had their time with uh, with less expensive sort of adventure stuff and want something that feels pretty modern. Uh, I find the design to be busy, but I don't think that would ever bother me while I was using it. It bothers me when I see it on a website with other. With you know, next to something like the Longines, which is kind of a classically handsome three-hand watch with no date, and this thing is just there's numbers and dials and and everything everywhere. What I would say is, imagine if you will, they take this, they go down to forty or forty-one millimeter, and just make a bright light version of like a steelfish, so just a dive watch that would weigh yeah. nothing. It would be like the greatest uh, weekend slash uh, like vacation watch ever. It would be quartz, so you'd never have to change the time on it. Uh, you could pick it up and do anything with it. It would weigh nothing. It would look pretty good. I think they could. I think they should take basically the style they've developed here and go in a couple other ways with it, because uh, I think it could be it could be great. And, we, and you remember a lot of times with the bright light stuff, it was on like forty seven, forty eight millimeter. You know those like yeah, really, like the things you've never seen in the wild. I've never seen someone wear some of those uh, really huge dive watches. But I, I always look at them and go like, hey, this would be pretty sweet at like forty or forty one. Yeah. Uh, and no, I, I agree product. with you. And I agree. I agree with you, James, that like this, it's interesting to look at this next to some of the more heritage stuff that that's been the focus the last couple of years. Um, I think Breitling, you know, is undergoing a lot of changes right now. And I, I think so far they're they seem to be doing a really good job. And it's, it's interesting to watch them sort of reshape their image while not alienating the customers who made them tremendously successful for for decades um and so it's it's fascinating i mean it's a hard thing it's like if it ain't broke but at the same time they've kind of made like a decision to still move in a different direction so it's it's products like this that show us that like okay they're not they're not totally abandoning what we might say is like the old brightling or the you know one generation ago of brightling but they're evolving it you know these have like, you know, eco-friendly straps, which feels like a sort of like play toward a more contemporary audience. For sure. I, I don't know, but it's uh it's certainly interesting to watch. Um, you know, these these also aren't the only non-traditional case metal watches or case material watches we've seen. Uh and I wrote a story 
about this trio of aluminum Bulgari watches, uh, which Bulgari is just calling the Bulgari Aluminium and Aluminium Chronograph. Um, and, you know, in a, in a similar way, like you pick these up and they're on rubber straps, they have aluminum cases, they have rubber bezels, uh, and they just feel like such like fun get up and go watches for right now. And like, I, I don't know how you guys feel, but like with everything going on in the world, like if a watch can put a smile on my face and make me think like, oh, maybe I can like go to the beach with this or like go have fun and get out a little bit. Like that's a, that's a valuable proposition from a wristwatch these days. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. I think they're really great looking things. They, they feel to me like they, like something that's been around for a while. It doesn't feel like a new watch. Yeah. Um, I guess that that would change if maybe I, you were, I was there to pick one up and feel how light they are. But this aesthetic is something that I instantly like connect back to the 90s in some ways, especially because like uh, um, Pacino in Heat is wearing uh, a, a similar sort of case style. I, I believe it's a steel one. Yeah. Uh, but he has a really, uh, you know, a great um, uh, Diagano chronograph. Uh, in that movie and whenever I see that he's got a bunch of bracelets on he's shooting guns and you're seeing the, the watch and that kind of thing it's uh that one always stands out in my head as as, as like a signature sort of look for Bulgari and and I, I think that they've stuck with it uh, I like uh, the especially the the light dial uh, three-hander I think is is a pretty fun looking watch I agree should we should we insert some uh, Vincent Hanna uh, audio just effects him just here shouting just for, so uh, much shouting just screaming yeah <laughs> throwing TVs uh-huh. just yeah um, yeah when we do the uh, official Hodinky radio heat cast we'll uh, we'll both get some bulgaries oh, to, uh, to wear for that yeah guns and um, yeah I think I think putting these next to the brightlings though is is kind of fascinating because they're they're two they're two very different uses of alternative case materials um they have two totally different vibes they're trying to be two very different things yet they kind of employ some of the same some of the same methods we've got like a unique sort of rubber strap situation we've got a lightweight material you know it's it's the watches are meant to be kind of like punchy and graphic in a certain way it's uh these are not watches that i i had originally like thought of as birds of a feather but seeing them sort of side by side. I, I don't know. I'm not convinced that they're not sort of related to one another in a certain way. And, and also both are kind of calling back to a, a previous generation of each brand. Yes. Uh, that's for, you know, yeah. like, yeah, like that's a good point. Bulgari yeah. now is so very much the Octo in, yeah. in their presentation to the watch world. Certainly. I'm not sure if you went into a store, which, you know, case would be more prominently in, in terms of their yeah. line, uh, but they make a lot more watches than I think the normal enthusiast, uh, you know, scrolling Hodinkee or other sites would be aware of. Uh, it's not just the Octo and, and adding a couple Octos a year. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think with these as, as kind of modern interpretations of designs that they, they that they were kind of highly keyed into a decade ago or, or you know, somewhere along that line, I, I think there is some similarity between them. And the the Borgeries aren't vastly more expensive either. The, the three-hand starts at... Uh, three grand and it looks like yeah 4250 for the chronograph yeah i, I really love these yeah these i bracelets. Had, yeah i have i have mixed feelings about these is bracelets. it, rubber, <laughs> is it I, uh, rubber on the bracelet steven it's it's rubber the the actual pieces are rubber and then they have these uh like little aluminum joints between them uh, i think they're aluminum they might be steel but i'm pretty sure they're aluminum mm-hmm. um yeah it's so I got to see these watches in person to shoot some pictures before uh, before they launched. And when I saw the press photos, 
I kind of had no feelings about them. I was like, oh, this is Bulgari doing a thing that Bulgari's done before. Like, they're reviving it. Okay, fine. I saw the watches in person and was like, holy shit, these are fun. Like, I, I put one on my wrist, walked out into the sunlight in Soho in, in New York, and uh, Tiffany, our, our photographer on staff, uh, was taking wrist shots for me. And, like, I was like, you know what? I could... I, I'm kind of vibing with this right now. Um, they're, they're a lot of fun to wear. They really do weigh nothing. They're super slim. Um, and, and John, to answer your question, like the or, or to address the, the thing you mentioned with the bracelet is I like it in theory. I think you have to have, I think they work better for certain wrist sizes than they do for others because they, like a bracelet, create sort of like structure, yep. like hard structure within it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me personally, like that first link kind of like hangs off my wrist a little bit in a way I didn't love. Like, I think I personally would enjoy them more on just a plain black rubber strap. Uh, that said, if it fits your wrist right, I think it's a super cool look. Uh, I think it would be really comfortable. Um, and I think it would alleviate one of the main downsides of a rubber strap, which is that like when you get really sweaty, it gets kind of sticky and it sticks to your wrist and it like... It's not the most comfortable thing when it's really hot out. Um, whereas this will give you like that little bit of bracelet feel where the watch can kind of slide a little bit, which I, I think is, it's an elegant solution to a problem that I think like most people don't acknowledge as an actual problem, if that makes any sense. Uh, all right. So I got I got one last watch I want to chat with you guys about. Um, I wanted to talk about a new Omega, the, the Seamaster Diver 300 meter Necton edition. Um, James, this feels right up your alley. Uh, it's Seamaster with an all metal bezel. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think, well, one, I think it's gorgeous. Uh, I think, you know, it's based on the 42 millimeter model and it's kind of, um, the finishing on the bezel is interesting because it's a relief style engraving. And then the plate, the base, the background, if you will, has sort of a frosted finish to it. And it just doesn't on a rubber strap. It doesn't look like. So much of Omega now has the some sort of ceramic around the the dial, chronographs, uh, dive watches, of course. You know they they have the these super high tech, lovely, uh, often very colorful and, and beautifully made bezels. But there's something just like classic Seamaster about a metal bezel, and uh, it's certainly not. You know back in the the you know several previous generations, even before the um, Planet Ocean, they they had models that had. Uh, bezels like this as you know usually in in more of a special edition or limited edition sense and uh and yeah with this on on the the black rubber you see that picture with the like it's underwater it's got some droplets or bubbles around it looks real good i like it yeah i agree i think the the finish on that bezel which by the way the, the insert is titanium which is super cool uh and i can only imagine how difficult it is to engrave and finish titanium like that um you know, for people who may not may not realize, uh, machining titanium is an absolute nightmare. Uh, it requires different tools than machining steel, uh, and if it gets too hot, it combusts like uh, like magnesium or something would, uh, and you can't really put it out very easily. Uh, it's extremely dangerous. <laughs> um, so I can only imagine what Omega had to do uh, at their manufacturer with their supplier to make make these bezels. Um, it's kind of like a low key flex here that, that I'm really into. Um, and I, I think you're totally right, James, like so much of Omega's current generation is about that kind of like gloss and that shine and the really rich colors. 
and this is this is kind of a throwback in that way like it's got the frosted finish the black wave dial is pretty low-key the rubber strap is matte like this is this is a more understated but still thoroughly modern and like badass seamaster yeah, and and you know it's tied it's tied to uh, a not for profit research foundation you know supporting the oceans of you know via Peter Blake's work. Uh, he's a, a, a New Zealand uh, sailor and explorer and and a, a, an excellent uh, Wikipedia read if you have a few minutes. Uh, but he runs a boat now called uh, the Sea or yeah the Sea Master, and it's uh, mm-hmm. it's in support of of that. So you get a, a pretty cool. Uh, on the the case back is solid, which isn't that common for Omega these days either. You know, they always are showing off those movements, and uh, and the case back on this has a the engraving of the uh, submarine uh, from Necton called the Seamaster Two, and uh, the submarine's cool. It's one of those. It's kind of like two pontoons with a bubble in the middle. It's like, like kind of classic modern exploring sub uh, submarine, and uh, yeah, I think it looks great. Uh, I think it could be super popular. You know, I think they're making, oh, it's not limited edition. I thought it was. Oh, that's cool. So yeah, uh, I would do it on the rubber strap, but I understand a lot of people want the bracelet. So you're looking at like 5,800 bucks up to 6,200 bucks. Yeah. Typical Speedmaster yeah. price point, but I think it's, it's just, it's that much different just because of the bezel. Yeah. I agree with, with pretty much everything. All, uh, both of you guys have said, uh, I really love the finish on the bezel. Uh, the use of titanium is nice. Um, but for me, I, f- I feel like the, the real news here is just the fact that, you know, this watch, uh, the, the Longines that we talked about before, a Breguet that we didn't talk about, um, all these watches from the Swatch Group, you know, kind of dropped, uh, you know, right uh, in the midst of, uh, like, you know, the Geneva watch days. So we, I don't think anyone expected that we would be covering <laughs> true, a, a, yeah. a bunch of Swatch Group releases uh, during that time, you know. So, like, there have just been a ton of releases expected and unexpected in, uh, uh, in August. Yeah, I agree. And like, honestly, I'm, I'm kind of excited for it. Like I, I, I know we, we've done a lot of hand wringing over the last couple months, but I think it was pretty warranted. I mean, when everything started to shut down in March, including, you know, a lot of watch manufacturers in Switzerland, which we've all covered and, and we've all, you know, everybody listening has probably read our stories about that. It looked like this might be a year with no new watches. Yeah. The trade shows were canceled. Factories were shut down. You know, marketing budgets were slashed in a lot of cases, which affects how how brands choose to launch products. Like this, this was this looked like it might be a dead year for the watch industry. And instead, it seems by this point, like I'm I'm hard pressed to think of a major brand that hasn't released at least a couple interesting things. And it's been a different cadence for us as as journalists kind of working in this space and reporting on it. Mm-hmm. It's probably different for customers in terms of, you know, not knowing like, okay, this week in March, April, I'm going to call my AD and have a list of stuff I want. But I think we're, we're getting a lot of good stuff. Yeah. And I think there's weirdly 2020 is shaping up to be like a pretty good year for product for like actual watches, how it is for the industry and for collectors and for people more broadly is a, totally totally different conversation but i don't know about you guys like i i feel pretty good about the new watches that are out on the market this year yeah i do too i feel like you know it's it's the 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 circumstances have been kind of extraordinary but the uh the watches have been have been awesome it's been fun kind of watching them come out uh it's been a different way to to cover them for sure but it's uh we're seeing new watches so we can't be that upset yeah, I would agree uh, great year so far for enthusiast product and uh and for brands kind of understanding where they can bring some heat to their lineup and fill in some holes and that sort of thing. And I think especially if you're in for dive watches, 
uh, you got a lot of choices these days for sure. Yeah. More by the minute, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, with that in mind, like, I'm sure I will have you guys back on very soon to talk about more because, you know, there are no signs uh, to indicate that this is slowing down. Like, I think we're really, everybody's going to keep sprinting to the end of the year and hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll have some more fun stuff to talk about. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thank you.